Welcome to Aperia, the podcast, where we discuss the great questions of classical Christian education. We're your hosts. I'm Tim Dernland. And I'm Danielle Dillenschneider. Join us as we navigate our way through the labyrinth of questions. So for this episode, I think it would be good for us to now dive into Aperia in the classical tradition, as we've discussed it already in the Christian tradition, and the way that it would be really helpful for us to examine that in the classical tradition is by looking at Euthyphro and Mino, these two platonic dialogues, examining Socrates and how he tends to provoke Aperia and those he has conversations with. So Tim, I wanted to throw it to you. What did you think about the Euthyphro dialogue? I'm glad you had me read it. I'd, I'd read Mino, but um, I'm glad we're starting with Euthyphro because it was a first time reading it mm-hmm. through for me. And I can see why you chose this for us to read because it did um, send me into some aporia. And so as any good uh, teacher, you chose this intentionally and and, and it was fascinating. Um, can you can you set it up for us a little bit? Uh, so, kind of what we're walking into with this, then we can we can discuss it and uh, and and glean more wisdom from it from each other. Absolutely. So, Euthyphro is one of Plato's dialogues. It oftentimes actually comes in a collection called "The Last Days of Socrates." It's one of the first dialogues in that, really just setting up the end of Socrates's life and. Uh, what led to his, his death and that sort of thing. And uh, you kind of understand why people maybe wanted to kill this guy because he was a little <laughs> frustrated. I, uh, I always loved teaching this work, the youth pro. Uh, back in the day, I used to even teach it with seventh graders, which was maybe a little ambitious, but they always got super confused and hated it, which was honestly funny to me because, you know, got to throw a little bit of apparia in there. Um, but you don't want to leave him there. you feel like Socrates a little bit. A little bit, yeah. It's very empowering. I understand why he wanted to ask questions. So, uh, yeah, in, in the dialogue of Euthyphro, uh, named after one of the speakers, Euthyphro, Socrates uh, is waiting to go into court, and he runs into this guy, hence the name Euthyphro. Euthyphro is there to prosecute his father for the murder of a slave. Well, really, I think that's a little bit hasty to call it murder, because the slave himself, he, he had killed someone, and while they were sending to another authority to to kind of figure out what do we do about this, this guy committed murder, you put him in a ditch, the guy died in the ditch, and uh, Euthyphro says, this is so, so wrong of my dad, so I'm going to take my father to court, and what I'm doing is pious. Well, and if you know anything about Socrates... He, he wanted, jumps on that. Yeah, right? he jumps on that. He he always was wanting to learn from people, um, and I maybe say learn with air quotes. Uh, he wanted to learn from other people who were wise and prove that he was not the wisest person ever and, and learn from those wise people what virtue is or what piety is. And so when he finds out that Euthyphro says, oh, he knows exactly what piety is, Socrates says, great. Do you teach me? You, you know. You can teach me. That's great. And then... Hence our dive then into what is piety, mm-hmm. and, and Socrates starts pressing on Euthyphro, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that is probably the most complex and confusing part of this dialogue. Uh, and I think by the end, you know 
that Euthyphro has experienced aporia. Mm. Um, how do you think he responded? How did you notice him responding to this experience of aporia? Well, uh, in the end, he runs away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he, he, mm-hmm. he, he goes along with Socrates and tries to explain himself. But then when Socrates continues to push him and really challenge his assumptions and even each of his words saying, mm-hmm. we'll explain that, um, he, he shows a little frustration and then just, you know, obviously finally leaves in the end. But um, it was how a lot of folks, I think, and myself included, respond in some, time, some ways and sometimes um, when we're not quite ready for it. Um, mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, ready for what? In uh, ready for, um, ready for a deeper dive into uh, what our true sense, our mental models. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we just walk around with these mental models. I know what piety is, and then when Socrates starts pushing him on it, he might not know exactly how to define piety. Gets confusing, then frustrating, and then he wants to get away right? Yep, absolutely. I think it's, it's funny because, uh, there's a certain sense in which, you know, in classical Christian education, we talk about Socratic teaching. Hmm. When you actually read these dialogues, how would it feel to have Socrates as a teacher? (laughs) Um, it would be, I think it would make parent-teacher conferences go uh, in a different direction, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, we yeah. just finished up some of those, and uh, and I think it could cause some frustration, some genuine mm-hmm. frustration, but it could really be exciting and mm-hmm. uh, and take us into some deeper learning, right? Yes, yeah, because I think I think Socrates' whole goal was to he he was in this sort of legend. He talks about this in the Apology. Uh, his defense of his way of being. Uh, he, he received this sort of oracle uh, that he was the wisest man. Um, and he, he said, no, I'm not the wisest man. And let me go prove this oracle wrong. I'm going to find somebody else who is wise. And really that's what wisdom and his conclusion is, is realizing that he doesn't know. And there's actually something really lovely about that from a Christian perspective too. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we discussed in our first episode, Aporia can oftentimes bring you to this sense of, I don't really have the answers for this. I'm, I'm at an impasse. I'm completely puzzled. And uh, to, to kind of lean not on your understanding, I think in some ways that's really lovely that Socrates gets there. Um, but it, it's funny, too, because he's oftentimes trying to bring other people there with him through sure. his questions. Sure. But they might not always want to go there. And that's, and that's the, the rub right there. You know, um, you need a willing participant. You mm-hmm. need, and and um, yeah, he can. It's what got him killed, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, for corrupting the the youth and not believing in the gods of Athens, and because uh, he starts to really question. We have all these, and, and this is kind of the fascinating part of Euthyphro dialogue to me. He starts to say, you know, he's questioning Euthyphro. Okay, what's impiety or what's piety? Piety is, well, what's approved of the gods? Well, the gods disagree, Socrates says. You've got some gods who think this and like this person. You've got some gods who like this other person, according to, you know, the Odyssey is a prime example. The Iliad is a prime example, you know? Uh, so he's, he's really poking holes in a lot of these arguments, but Euthyphro kind of keeps trying to ignore it. He's, oh, well, whatever the gods actually agree on. And then it gets into this very complex part where it's, is it 
pious because it's approved by the gods or is it approved by the gods because it's pious and it gets that's the part that always confuses everybody but um but but that's a good part for us mm -hmm, uh yeah. too like what what is virtue what is mm -hmm, piety mm -hmm, is it mm -hmm. is it because god says it is or is it another reason so it, it does mm -hmm. challenge us for today so what are some passages danielle that we should jump into specifically so one of my favorite passages is really at the end of uh the of the youth for a dialogue it's uh, around section 15 d uh, Socrates says, if you had no clear knowledge of piety and impiety, you would never have ventured to prosecute your old father for murder on behalf of a servant. For fear of the gods, you would have been afraid to take the risk lest you should not be acting rightly and would have been ashamed before men. But now I know well that you believe that you have clear knowledge of piety and impiety. So tell me, my good youth pro, and do not hide what you think it is. And youth response, some other time, Socrates, for I'm in a hurry now, and it's time for me to go. Um, and Socrates says, what a thing to do, my friend. By going, you have cast me down from a great hope I had. And I would learn from you the nature of the pious and the impious, and so escape Miletus' indictment for, by showing him that I had acquired wisdom in divine matters from Euthyphro. And my ignorance would no longer cause me to be careless and inventive about such things, and that I would be better for the rest of my life. That's the end of the dialogue. It's very, uh, it's a very inconclusive conclusion, intentionally. We never really find out what piety is. So I think that shows that the point of this dialogue is not necessarily what's pious and what's impious, but how should we handle our own knowledge of these concepts, mental models, as you said, and, and should we be willing to experience aporia, or what should we do when people try to bring us to that state? So that I, I want to dwell on the ending here for a second and help me help me think through it. So I put a note here as I read it the first time that I think that Socrates is still trying to teach him as he sends him off with that. Is that correct? I felt like I, I wanted to think Socrates was being sarcastic, but I think I want to assume the best and think he was he was trying to leave him in with an, one last challenge and question. So maybe it would rattle around and he'd think through it more after he'd left. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah, okay. I think the if you really knew, you wouldn't do this, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you if you or you would you would do this with the right intentions. And if you could really explain it to me, then, you know. That, that means that you're an expert. That means you know. And the fact that you can't explain it, what you kind of read between the lines. The fact that Euthyphro cannot explain what piety is and why it is that what he's doing is pious should really, the implied conclusion is, you're not right in doing what you're doing by prosecuting your father. That's that's wrong. So stop, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really fascinating to think about that. But I think that just kind of shows that we're talking about this concept of aporia, and we're trying to dive into, you know, uh, how do we handle being at an impasse, being confused by a question. Uh, we don't always handle it well, mm. right? Mm. And what do you think this dialogue shows you about a, a bad response? Hmm. So that's a, an assumption that Euthyphro had a bad response, and I agree with that assumption <laughs> that he did. Um and um, boy, I think I think we um, maybe you Danielle and, and me we can have 
bad responses with uh, avoiding avoiding digging deep enough to figure out the truth and whether that's our perceived lack of time or the effort that it will take uh, the humility that it takes the dysphoria that it throws us into there's so many things that cause the bad response but I think you were asking what are some bad responses Boy, any, anything from anger to frustration to running away, mm-hmm. uh, like euthyphro. Um, what, what do you think? No, I, I completely agree. I think this fact that, that's exactly what I noted too, the fact that he really just writes him off because he's in a hurry. Mm. And I think sometimes I, I know I am very guilty of this. I kind of encounter some sort of problem, whether it's in my teaching or and, you know, personal life where I just think, uh, I don't really want to dig into that. You know, I don't, I just, it's easier to just go with a comfortable answer. I can't really explain why I'm wrong or what's wrong with it, but it's easier to just move on, you know, and to not, to not worry about the fact that it doesn't really hold together, you know, that I couldn't really explain why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, I just, I just want to do it because then I, I don't have to think about it, you know? Sure. And whether that's in personal relationships, um, around the house, with friends, uh, even even at church with certain passages of scripture, um, or certainly in the classroom as we're, we're going through uh, different passages with students. But it's, um, it's challenging. It's challenging. This is challenging me here even in the moment. There's things coming to mind that, that um, maybe I've moved on past that, that I shouldn't. I should slow down, contemplate, and be willing to invest the time and effort and and uh, scripture tells us there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel, seeking that out and taking time to um, not just quickly move past that that state of being, that aporia, and instead, uh, um, boy, I'm at a loss of words. Mm-hmm. I'm at a loss of words. Yeah, no, I, I I get what you're saying, and I I agree. It's uh, it's not something that we normally seek out. And it's fascinating. So Socrates always thought of himself as a gadfly. Mm. Uh, that's what he says in, mm-hmm. in um, the Apology, which when you really think about that, that's so unpleasant <laughs> because I yeah. hate horse flies <laughs> <laughs> and, and deer fly or whatever else they're called. Gadflies. But we need them in our life. Mm-hmm. Why do we need them? Um, to, uh, to, I don't know. Why do we need them? Uh, as Socrates would say, it moves the horse. It moves us into action, to doing something, even though it might end up, in his case, getting smacked, getting killed. Yeah. Uh, you know. But the gadfly bites the horse, right? And he thinks of Athens as the horse, and he wants Athens to start changing its ways and and do something different and think more deeply about what they're they're doing and some of the ideas that they have, um, the sophists in the town, that sort of thing. I think. Uh, it's fascinating because when you think about uh, the, just being a gadfly or, or to other people, that's really quite annoying um, mm. if, if you think about it. Like I, I don't I, I used to work as a lifeguard and we would have really bad horse flies around the pool and it, when you would get bit by one of those, you just have to move from place to place and as a lifeguard that's kind of challenging sometimes. Uh, so you're constantly moving and you're, you're trying to find ways around it get rid of it um but at times too you know it actually forces you um somewhere else i think uh Kara was telling me about a time that y'all were visiting a place and there were a bunch of 
of deer fly, right? Oh yeah, Minnesota. I think mm-hmm. I think mosquitoes or horseflies are are their state bird. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 it, it was it was rough. It was mm-hmm. bad, and it definitely kept us moving. Mm-hmm. Right, it kept us moving, and so being stagnant in life is uh, not always good. Being content, mm-hmm. contemplating is good. So um, contentment is good, but being stagnant um, mm-hmm. can. Um, well, you think of stagnant water. Um, it's not healthy, um, but living water, moving water is good. And mm-hmm. so, um, I mean, we see in scripture, um, from our last episode and carrying that over to this one, that, um, that Christ is the, the vine and the father is the vine dresser and he'll prune those that he loves so mm-hmm. that there can be more fruit. And in some ways the gadfly, you know, the, that can be that to cause us to move like the, the fly and the horse that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And Thanks. it's interesting that sometimes I think God will put people like that or situations like that in our lives to yeah. to, to serve as the impetus for action. Whereas in, in the dialogue of Mino, that one's fascinating to me because Mino, we don't get a whole lot of context, but he seems to seek out Socrates. You know, I have this question about virtue. Can you really teach virtue? And we don't really get much more context than that. Um, but Socrates just says, well, you know, what do you think? Yeah. Uh, you said you've you've studied Mino before. What have you thought about Mino and and so yeah, let's let's uh, let's shift over to Mino mm-hmm. um, and um, and y- Euthyphro is great. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna go back and read that again um, mm-hmm. and, and again and but um, but with uh, with Mino, um, just that idea of what is virtue is really fascinating and uh, and having Mino ask Socrates that and trying to dig into it, um, it's really great. So uh, again, written uh, around maybe 385 BC, um, and uh, some of these dialogues um, can help us understand uh, Aporia. So do you want to give us a, a setup of Mino before we jump in? Sure. So uh Mino is actually uh, from a very leading aristocratic family, Thessaly, and friendly to Athens, Thessaly is, and, and um, he, he would have known about Socrates and his reputation a bit, and he wanted to ask Socrates uh, before he's about to kind of go on this campaign and that sort of thing, well, you know, can, can we teach uh, virtue? And this is a really highly debated question at the time. And uh, kind of along with that question of can we teach virtue, is it is it something is virtue something that comes by practice? Um, is it acquired by birth, uh, by nature, some other way? And Socrates kind of does the thing that he always does at the beginning of this uh, dialogue, and he says, "Well, what do you think? Can you give me a definition, essentially?" And what's fascinating to me when I read this is. Uh, how circular and shallow our definitions of these things are, these ideas are. And I think that's because uh, that's showing what they were taught. And if you think about the Greek concept of what they're taught and paideia and this concept of enculturation, I think it's showing that maybe even the culture itself has a very shallow notion of what virtue is and why it's that. Okay. And I think, uh, you know, Socrates was a great critic of a lot of the teaching in Athens this concept of, you know, you've had the sophists that are, are saying, oh, we can make your your pers- your child um, this, this 
wise, virtuous, great politician when really they were just teaching them how to lie and be kind of these sleazy politicians that weren't really actually good. Sure. And he makes that point. If virtue could simply be taught, if it was just uh, knowledge, a knowledge base, then all these aristocrats and others, they would they would have virtuous sons. They would have virtuous daughters. They would they would simply be able to pass that on. So one more thing with the setup um, here at the beginning, I love what Socrates says um, when he's asked about it. He says, um, um, I'm, just, I'm so far from knowing whether virtue can be taught or not that I do not even have any knowledge of what virtue itself is and throws it right back to Mino and saying, let's, let's talk about it. And then, like you said, is it, is it taught? Is it caught? Is it born into us? Is it just given to us by, um, the gods or as, as we know, um, by, um, by God. And, um, and so I, I think, um, I'll share some of my thoughts that there has to be a knowledge and then belief and then action, which leads back to more knowledge and more belief and more action. And that's kind of cyclical and you need all of them. Um, so what do you think? About, about his, uh, what he says about virtue sure. and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, well, so I think Socrates really puts it on Mino to, to define it, ask some questions, kind of like the Euthyphro situation. It's showing how it just, he deconstructs his whole thought process. Sure. With it's questions. Because he gives examples of virtue. Mm-hmm. but doesn't define virtue. And yes. that, that's part of the, the early dialogue, right? So he's like, no, no, mm-hmm. you're, you're telling me some examples of virtue and virtue's not um, all these many things. Mm-hmm. What is virtue itself? Yes, and I, I love Mino's response to this sort of questioning and, and complete, you know, frustration, frustrating uh, part of this conversation. Uh, in section 80b, he says, uh, Socrates, before I even met you, I used to hear that you were always in a state of perplexity, aporia, <laughs> and that you bring others to the same state. And now I think you are bewitching and beguiling me, simply putting me under a spell so that I am quite perplexed. Indeed, if a joke is in order, you seem, in appearance and in every other way, to be like the broad torpedo fish, for it too makes anyone who comes close and touches it feel numb, and you now seem to have had this kind of effect on me, for both my mind and my tongue are numb, and I have no answer to give you. Yet I have made many speeches about virtue before large audiences on a thousand occasions, very good speeches as I thought, but now I cannot even say what it is. I think that's fascinating and humbling to say, I've given speeches on this thing. I thought I knew what it was. Couldn't tell you now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that says something about Mino and his willingness to say that, but also the skills of Socrates to get him to that point. Yes. And I think Socrates also responds to this. Well, you know, maybe you could call me a torpedo fish if I actually thought I knew, you know, um, but, but I don't know if that's the best image for me, maybe. Um, he says, I myself do not have the answer when I perplex others, but I am more perplexed than anyone when I cause perplexity in others, right? So the, the torpedo fish is not numb. He's numbing other people, but he's saying, well, that's not me. you know, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not um, unapparia, or I'm not, you know, at a complete active ability to do things. I, uh, I, 
I don't know either. Um, but he says, he goes on to say, so now I do not know what virtue is. Perhaps you knew before you contacted me, but now you are certainly like one who does not know. Nevertheless, I want to examine and seek together with you what it may be. Which I think that's what makes me realize at the end of Euthyphro, if Euthyphro had just been winning, willing to stay, right. they would have sought it together. But Euthyphro wasn't willing to admit that he didn't really know. But Mino was, right? So I think that's something about Aporia is when you actually can acknowledge you don't know the answer, but you find somebody else who says, well, I, I also don't know if I really could tell you, but let's figure it out together. Mm-hmm. I think that's the goal of this here. Yeah, yeah. And that's and that's why I'm enjoy, enjoying sitting here with you because... Mm-hmm. I'm I'm learning. I don't I I don't know. I wanna I wanna know, and um, it's helping me to understand. So that is a really neat um, dichotomy between Euthyphro and Mino and their responses. Um, I think that's why I like Mino better because there's a willingness, a willingness to grow and understand, and and more hope, I guess, uh, in it than in, in Euthyphro. Absolutely. I'm looking for a quote, one of my favorite quotes. I discussed it when I was studying at the Templeton Honors College. We were studying uh, classical Christian education. And uh, we read this, this uh, quote, I'm try- or this, this, uh, this dialogue kind of modeled off of this. Um, is modern. I think it's um, maybe called Who's to Say. I'll go back and look at that, maybe add it in the show notes, because it's a fascinating dialogue. There's a character... They're talking about virtue and how should we live and that sort of thing. And uh, Socrates says, and this is on page 80, uh, or page 886 for you to know, um, but in section 86C, he says, um, I think that uh, we will be better men, braver and less idle, if we believe that one must search for the things one does not know, rather than if we believe that it is not possible to find out what we do not know and that we must not look for it. Because mm. I mm. think that is... One thing that can happen with aporia, it can lead to apathy. That it can lead to us realizing, well, if I can't know the answer, then I might as well just give up, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and Socrates is saying, well, I think it'd be better, I think we'll be better people if we realize that we need to actually search for an answer here. Sure. You know? And I think that's another important part of this dialogue that differentiates. And, and, and there's that um, either not addressing it at all, so avoidance or getting so deep and confused that you become apathetic. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why we need others. Um, we need a teacher um, to bring us along and, and help us um, avoid both of those pitfalls, either drag us into the conversation or pull us out of despair and keep us moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It's, it's interesting. Um, I believe it was in in Mino where he he talks about there's there's knowledge already in us. Um, I taught a, a slave through geometry. Am I thinking of it correctly? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and how just through questioning, the uneducated slave was able to figure out um, these mathematical concepts. Um, so the idea that we already have knowledge in us. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, uh, goes along with 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 um, Ecclesiastes that was written in a thousand BC, mm-hmm. uh, nearly seven hundred years before this. Ecclesiastes three eleven, uh, God has set eternity in the human heart. So there's there's something to having a, a a knowledge already in us 
not quite what Socrates is saying at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. But again, he bumps up against truth so many times. Um, any, oh, okay. any thoughts on that? Oh, I, I totally agree. There's this concept of of recollection and truth and aletheia, and I've heard so many wonderful lectures through the ACCS conference about connecting these concepts, and I'm probably going to not explain it as well, but um, aletheia is the word for truth, right? And uh, you think about the river Lethe in Greek mythology, and it's the the river with which you would drink, and it would make you forget everything, so to aletheis, to like unforget, right? So it makes you to recollect uh, th- this this idea that's that's truth that's imprinted on your soul. And so obviously, you know, Socrates kind of believed in the immortality of the soul in terms of reincarnation. But mm-hmm. I, I agree every time I've talked about Socrates and how close he was to Christian ideas and that sort of thing, just this belief in the soul of man and how I think it reminds me of just being made in the image of God mm. and how that there are these these truths that we can see in the world that we can observe in creation and know about God. And, and just as the passage you quoted from Ecclesiastes would say, is we, we have this concept of what is true and, and what is good, even if we can't clearly articulate it sometimes, we can get there. We can get to discovering it through questions and things like that. You can start to almost recollect or collect your thoughts and realize this is why um, I think that. And there's another passage that really fascinates me at the end of Mino that uh, similarly, like you were saying earlier, he there are times where it seems like Socrates gets close to Christian ideas. At the very end, uh, this discussion about virtue and what is it and how do you get there and that sort of thing, it's once more a very inconclusive conclusion. He kind of goes back and forth between, well, you can teach it. No, you can't. Because the only way you could really teach it is if somebody really ever knew it. But I don't know if we can find anybody who really knows virtue. So maybe you can teach it if you have right opinion, but you might not have full knowledge. And all of that's a little bit kind of complex and maybe a conversation for another time. <laughs> but in the end, he concludes with, uh, you know, I think virtue would be neither an inborn quality nor taught, but comes to those who possess it as a gift from the gods, which is not accompanied by understanding unless there is someone among our statesmen who can make another into a statesman. Um, to, to go a little bit further, he says, uh, in the same manner such a man would, as far as virtue is concerned, here also be the only true reality compared, as it were, with shadows. Mm. Um, virtue seems uh, virtue appears to be present in those of us who may possess it as a gift from the gods. That idea, I mean, how do you think that connects to Christian ideas? Uh, I, think, I think that's accurate in that... Um we need, we need the Holy Spirit to awaken us from uh, our our death in sin. We need, um, we need the Holy Spirit to grow us and move us. He uses people. Um, God uses situations, and so we need we need all of that. Um, it reminds me a little bit. Uh, uh, there's so much throughout Scripture. Uh, I was thinking of another one of Plato's works um, in Theotetus when he says to escape evil and attain true wisdom, men must become like God, righteous, holy, wise. And so he bumps up against that, um, but we can only find that hope uh, and not be left in despair through Christ and through the word of God, through the 
the truth, the the true myth, as mm-hmm. as uh, we hear, uh, Christ is the myth made fact, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Lewis and others talk about that. Um, there's just so much, so much to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, help me out here. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think uh, this idea that virtue must be a gift from the gods. There's some that's in some ways it's an inborn, not not really quite an inborn quality, right? From a Christian perspective, you might say. While we're born in the image of God, our actions are not um, really ever going to be purely, truly perfect on our own power, right? Um, But the fact that you can start to really be virtuous uh, through the working of the Holy Spirit, that he can purify your motives and your actions and use even imperfect acts of generosity or, um, you know, even times when you're, you're... making an effort to show fortitude or things like that, that he is really the one who perfects that. And, uh, it's the fruit of the spirit, you know? Mm, And I think that, uh, to me, I, I just read this and I think, wow, you know, Socrates claims he doesn't really know a lot of things, but he gets really to some very interesting, uh, conclusions sometimes. And they're still, like I said, inconclusive conclusions, but, uh, he, he ends on notes that make you a little bit more, hopeful if you're willing to travel with him and wrestle with this sort of sense of uncertainty. Um, yeah, I think in so, so many ways, that's just beautiful to me to think about, uh, not, not having all of the answers, but willing to seek. Yeah, I think, I think that's a a good place to start wrapping up. I mean, the idea that we can grow, we can be sanctified, we can become more like Christ. And so that's a moving toward virtue through so many ways. And so to to have some knowledge of what is justice or what is all these different types of virtues. And I know going back into Mino, I'm, I'm being like him and, and, and breaking it apart, but um, it's hopeful. And I'm glad we can have that hope in Christ. Maybe next time we can talk about uh, teaching and, and growing in the area of teaching and, and that hope that is offered in the classroom. But you want to you wanna wrap us up with uh, some thoughts on Euthyphro and Mino and, and, uh, and uh, help us uh, synthesize all that we've talked about? Absolutely. So today we've talked about how Euthyphro and Mino, these two Greek classical dialogues, they show us two different responses to aporia. Hmm. We could be like Euthyphro and say, eh, I don't have time for this, don't have time for these questions, don't have time for this uncertainty, I'm going to just say I get it and move on. I want to keep going with what I'm doing. And I think in classical Christian education, we can experience that so many times, whether it's with how we manage our classroom, assess, or interact with students, we can choose to not question it. Or... We could have some sort of response like Mino, who demonstrates to us what it's like to be humble and say, I really don't think I could explain to you why I do the things I do or say the things I say or think the things I think. Can you help me? And Socrates is a fascinating teacher. Um, He's nowhere near as hopeful as Christ (laughs) is in the sense of, of giving us the certainty that we can know God. But he gives us a great model of saying, you know, I may not really know either, but let's, let's seek it together. And Mino and Socrates are willing to pursue that. And, yeah, they don't really quite get to a great 
conclusion in all of this. In some ways, they get uh, in some really close ways, and they're headed in the right direction, I think. Uh, I think that's kind of the hope and kind of the beauty of studying the classical Christian tradition, is that you see God's truth in so many different ways, uh, primed through the classical world. And it's such a joy to study this and talk about it with you. Yeah, this is fun. Thanks, Daniel. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.